the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. In ancient times, Noah was so esteemed by the Jewish people. We know from their literature, in fact, a book called First Enoch says some very fanciful stories about Noah, obviously not true, but some incredible things and things that enhance his reputation. For example, they said at his birth that he opened his eyes and made the whole house bright. It also says in First Enoch that he opened his mouth and blessed the Lord of heaven. We're talking about at his birth. So you can understand that uh, this enhances his reputation, and the Bible doesn't talk about silly stuff like that. That's just fictitious stuff. But instead, the Bible presents Noah to us as a man who stood alone in his generation, a man who was uh, a real man of God, a man who was distinct from everybody else around him, because he was, according to Genesis chapter 6, and you might as well turn there now to Genesis 6, Noah was the last godly man on the face of the earth. some of the YouTube videos where a person asks various passers-by a series of questions about historical events in, oh, say, U.S. history. I've cringed when I've heard some of the answers. I wonder if in today's social climate the name Noah would ring a bell or not. I know in my generation most people would associate the name Noah with the word flood. Well, here on Verse by Verse, we're starting a new series of programs about Noah and the flood. You might be thinking, what, what is there to know? Noah built an ark. He and his family got into the ark along with a bunch of animals. Then the earth flooded. I've been looking through our upcoming programs, and I can tell you that our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, has much to teach us about Noah and the flood. So, pun intended, let's dive into today's verse-by-verse broadcast. The name Noah has long been associated with the story of the flood and the ark that God commanded him to build. But, you know, usually when we think of Noah, we tend to think of an ark, animals, and a coloring book for children, right? I mean, something like that. But Noah is really presented to us in Scripture as more than an ark builder and certainly more than a children's story. The Bible reveals that he was one of the greatest men of all time. I don't know if you realize that, but the Bible elevates him above most other people in terms of his righteousness and godliness. Both the Old and New Testaments speak of his virtue and his godliness. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14 and verse 20, mention Noah along with Daniel and Job as the three most righteous men of the Old Testament. That's an amazing statement 
of all the prophets and all the godly men who lived, the three most godly men are Noah, Daniel, and Job. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, he is listed as one of the heroes and champions of faith. Noah was a great man. In fact, in ancient times, Noah was so esteemed by the Jewish people. We know from their literature, in fact, a book called First Enoch says some very fanciful stories about Noah. Obviously not true, but some incredible things and things that enhance his reputation. For example, they said at his birth that he opened his eyes and made the whole house bright. It also says in First Enoch that he opened his mouth and blessed the Lord of heaven. We're talking about at his birth. So you can understand that uh, this enhances his reputation, and the Bible doesn't talk about silly stuff like that. That's just fictitious stuff. But instead, the Bible presents Noah to us as a man who stood alone in his generation, a man who was uh, a real man of God, a man who was distinct from everybody else around him, because he was, according to Genesis chapter 6, and you might as well turn there now to Genesis 6, Noah was the last godly man on the face of the earth. He came from the godly line of Seth. That's not to say that everybody in that line was godly, but it is to say that there were some godly people in that line, but eventually there were none. And just Noah was left. And probably only Noah. We're not told about his family. The fact that they were preserved in the ark with him doesn't necessarily mean they were godly. We're just told that Noah was. Noah lived in horrible times. In Genesis 6, we're told what kind of a world that Noah lived in. In verse 2, it was a world of lust and sensuality. We read, And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And we've covered this great length. And you know that my view is that it was a time of great lust, a time of sensuality that men chose wives based purely on looks without any concern for virtue and character. In verse 4, we learn that it was a world of violence. It speaks of the Nephilim. We went over this last week. It says at the end of verse 4, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. We also know from verse 11 that it was a violent world. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And we went into this last week, what that would mean. It was also a world of wickedness, where in verse 5, God says that there are Thoughts were evil continually. Wickedness reigned in them. And it doesn't just mean that it was an evil world. It meant that it was a world that in the fullest capacity of sin, it was demonstrating itself. The full potential was there. A world much more wicked than even ours. And Genesis 4 tells us about the foundations of that world. In Genesis 4, God tells us about the world of Cain. Now, Cain lived many years before Noah, but there was a foundation there of wicked civilization. Just some of the things that emerge from chapter 4, and I've shared this with you before, but I'll refresh your mind. In verse 17, we learn in chapter 4 that cities were being built. Enoch built a city, so communities were being built. Verse 19 speaks about adultery and polygamy that was going on. A man by the name of Lamech took two wives when God had spoken of one wife for a man. He rebelled against the one wife principle. Verse 20 speaks of businesses were developing. There was someone who developed to be a cattle rancher and moving on to other places and developing tents. So businesses were starting. Then we learn in verse 21 that music was invented. And it appears that music became a form of entertainment, sort of a way to soothe life's difficulties. In verse 22, we're told the tools were created to build and to fix things. Verse 23, there was murder where Lamech, who was a polygamist, also murdered someone and boasted about it. Then in verses 25 and 26, we read that there was a total disregard for the Lord. 
People did this without any concern for God because it says that only at a certain point then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, implying that before that people didn't worship together and they didn't really honor the Lord. So it was a world that was much like ours, quite frankly, cities and buildings and music and business and immorality and violence without any regard for the Lord. That is the world that we live in. And it was into this environment that Noah was born. And yet it is in this environment that Noah went against the trend of society. And this morning, what we want to focus on is what made Noah so different? What made him so distinct? What are the spiritual qualities in Noah's life that we can learn from? Because we live in a world like this. True, we're not the last ones on the face of the earth who love the Lord. But you know what it's like to go against society. You know what it's like to be different, to be ostracized from family and sometimes at business, at school, even in a Christian school. In fact, in many ways in a Christian school. And so we want to learn how to be distinct and how to stand alone because God's people do stand alone. Jesus, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, has left us in this world to be salt and light. He prayed in John 17, Father, don't take them out of this world, but keep them in this world and keep them from the evil one, but we're kept here. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, listen to this. This is what God commands us to be in the light of a world that is very, very perverse. He says in verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We are to be different. We are to appear as lights in the world. But how can we be? How can we be in a very sin-darkened world? Now, I remind you, Noah was very much alone. The last godly person on the face of the earth, the godly line of Seth, had so intermarried that there was nobody left anymore except Noah. And that's where we begin this morning. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 8. The previous verses had said, God was so grieved in his heart, so sorry about man's sin that it grieved him that he'd even made man. Not that God felt like he had made a mistake, but he was grieved over what man had become. And he had purposed in his heart that he would destroy the world through a flood. And now we read in verse 8, and we touched on this last week, but Noah, in contrast to everybody else, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was gracious to Noah and also his family. And after promising to blot out mankind and the animals, God now tells Noah he would be spared. And then God gives us, as we go into this next section, a description of Noah. And it's this description that reveals his godliness. We're going to look at five spiritual qualities that Noah had. And I really believe that if we have these qualities, and you may not have the first one, but at least if you have the last four, if you have these qualities, you're going to be able to be distinct. You're going to be able to stand alone. You're going to be able to face this world as salt and light. Quality number one, Noah had a godly heritage. As we begin, we look at verse nine. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. These are the records of the generations of Noah. With these words, Moses, the writer of Genesis, is telling us that he's starting a new section of the book. This is how the book is structured. It's like a new chapter in a book. He's done this before. In fact, in chapter 5, look at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then he spoke about Adam's descendants through Seth. Now, he's telling us this 
is something new. It's a new chapter. These are the records of the generations of Noah. We're starting a new story, and it's about Noah and his descendants. Now, if you've been following with us in Genesis, you know this is the third major story in the book of Genesis. First you have creation, then you have the fall, and now you have the flood. But it's like a new chapter. Now, why is this important? Why am I taking the time to deal with this? Not only to show you the structure of the book, which is an inspired structure, but this is most important in the big picture of God's word to us because this line of Noah must be preserved in order for the Messiah to come through it. Do you realize that? In chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent, really to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. There's going to be a godly group of people who are always going to be in conflict with an ungodly group of people, but then he states about one of the godly descendants is going to be special and do something unique. And he says, he shall bruise you on the head. That is one of the seed of the woman. And it means the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this is a great promise. The first promise in the Bible of the coming of Christ. And it really speaks of the cross in which the power of Satan was rendered inoperative there. His power was taken from him, and the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. There must be a messianic line. Now, let me put this in a different perspective. The flood is not so much about destroying the world, though it is that, but it's not just that. In fact, I don't even think it's primarily that. The flood is about preserving Noah so that there might be a godly line for Messiah to come through. That's really, as I see the flood, the emphasis is not so much on who God destroyed, but who he preserved, so that there's a messianic line, so that salvation might come to us. What is that line? The line is Adam, it's Seth, it's Noah, it's Shem. From Shem we get Abraham. You've heard of the term Semitic, that comes from Shemitic, Shem, Abraham, from Abraham, David, from David, Jesus. I'd like you to keep your place in Genesis, but turn the New Testament to Luke chapter 3, and I just want you to see that this is not creology. This is the Bible. Luke chapter 3 gives us a genealogy of the Lord Jesus, but very interesting. In this genealogy, Luke goes back to Adam, showing that there is a godly line. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, just to begin it, we won't read the whole thing. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, and when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, meaning that he was not biologically the son of Joseph. And then he goes into the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, all the way down the line, and he's going back to Adam. Then look at verses 34 and following. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphax. Don't name your son Arphax. That's a rough one. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. Then it goes all the way back in the last verse to Adam. Do you see what I'm talking about? There is a godly line. That's why it's most important that Noah survive. Noah came from a special line of people, and his descendants through Shem became that special people called Israel through whom Jesus came. And it is this godly line that gives us the first hint of why Noah was so different than anybody else. What made him so different? Noah came from a godly line of men. 
Noah had a godly heritage. Chapter 5 speaks of Enoch, who was in his line. And Enoch walked with God, and the Bible says he was no more. It says of Lamech, his father, notice chapter 5, verse 29, about Lamech. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground that the Lord had cursed. Noah had a godly father who recognized that the reason that life was so hard was because of man's sin, and God cursed the earth. And so he named his son Noah with the hope and anticipation that Noah would be the Messiah and would deliver the people. Now, I don't think that he quite understood. In fact, he was wrong, but at least it indicates that there was a godliness there, that there was a recognition of sin, that there was a recognition that he wanted peace and rest from his toil. So he named his son Noah, which really means rest. He had hoped that he would give rest. May I suggest to you that Noah, one reason why he was godly in the midst of wickedness is because he grew up in a godly environment. The last one to grow up in a godly environment, I'm sure he had heard about his great-great-great-grandfather Enoch's preaching and godliness, godly behavior. His father had a proper understanding of sin and its results, and his name Noah, meaning rest, was a constant reminder to him of the truth of Messiah and the need for him. Let me say this. Those who are raised in a Christian home have an incredible opportunity that others don't. I say to you, if you are raised in a home that your mom and dad are Christians, you need to learn at an early age what salvation is. You get to learn that. You have the opportunity to trust Jesus at an early age, to be saved and delivered not only from the penalty of sin, but from the very power of sin in your life, to be kept from wicked behavior and patterns that others get into. I mean, that's certainly no guarantee, because mom and dad are Christians, that you're going to be like that. But I'm telling you, take advantage of that opportunity. Not everybody has that. I didn't have that. And many here have never had that. Sometimes those born into a Christian home secretly sort of resent it, feeling like, uh, you know what, I missed out on all the fun in life. I wasn't allowed to do things that others could do. Now I can't do that at all. Why couldn't I have been saved later and just lived a little bit before? You know what? That is distorted thinking. That is really distorted thinking. That's popular thinking. If people don't articulate that, I know they're thinking that. Many are. But I am telling you, you have a great, great opportunity that others don't. You ought to thank God and thank your parents that they're raising you in a Christian home because you have the best opportunity that any of us have. Now, that's not to discourage those of us who have never been raised in a Christian home because the grace of God is sufficient and you can't go back in time and figure that one out. If you were not raised in a Christian home, then what you need to do is make sure that you're raising your kids in a godly environment. And if you don't have children, then pray for others who are because that's probably the hardest thing that they have to do. Be an example consistently and walk before their children with the reality of the faith and teach them all of that and all the decisions that go into that. I just think that this is a tremendous thing that Noah had that nobody else had. Raised in an environment of faith. So he had a godly heritage. Secondly, Noah was not only raised like that, he applied it to his life. Because in the rest of verse 9, we're given some phrases that tell us some of the qualities of Noah's life. In fact, most of it is right here. Right at the end of the chapter, we'll see one more. But the first spiritual quality he had that helped him to stand alone is he was raised in a godly environment. Secondly, he was righteous. He was righteous. Notice verse 9 goes on to say, Noah was a righteous 
man. After telling us that these are the records of the generations of Noah, Moses just tells us Noah was righteous. He was a righteous man. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that the word righteous is used. Noah was not the first righteous person. There were other righteous people before him. He's the only righteous one at this point in history, but it's the first time this word is used. And in this context, it appears to mean that Noah was in a right relationship with the Lord, And his behavior reflected that relationship. In other words, Noah was a saved person. Noah was what we would say would be born again or saved. And Noah obeyed God like a saved person should. Now, we aren't told when Noah came to know the Lord. We aren't told the specifics. But the evidence of his faith was that he was righteous. And some of you may wonder, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? They didn't know about Jesus. Well, they didn't know the details that we did. First of all, understand that they were saved by Jesus Christ. No one gets to heaven any other way, whether you're born in the Old Testament or born in New Testament times. It is only the death of Jesus Christ that saves a person. It had nothing to do with the law. It had nothing to do with their obedience. It was all by grace. God saves only one way, by grace through faith. Noah didn't have all the information that we have about Jesus Christ. No Old Testament saint did. They had glimpses, Old Testament glimpses. But I'll tell you what Noah had. He had a promise from God that one day, one of the seeds of the woman would come who would crush the serpent's head. He understood that. And you know what? He believed that. I don't think he understood all the implications of that. In fact, I know he didn't. But he understood that his salvation was bound up in that promise. And he believed God's word. And he was saved based on that. He looked forward to the coming of Christ for salvation, even though it may have been vague to him. We look back on the fact that Christ has come, and we understand because we have the revelation from God. But he was a saved person, and the point of this verse is to say, as a saved person, he was righteous in his behavior. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you learn to be distinct, you learn to stand alone, you learn to be different from the world that you live in. If you are saved, then you must live like a saved person. If you are righteous internally, and you are righteous because God declares you righteous, which is what the Bible calls justification, then it must somewhere issue out in your life. How do you know that you're really saved? One main evidence for us is that if you are saved, there will be a reflection of Jesus Christ in your life. It will evidence itself by your behavior, certainly not perfection. None of us could ever have assurance then. It is the grace of God at work in you demonstrating that you have been and are being transformed. We're not what we want to be, but we should be different than what we have been. For example, in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll obey my word. Do you do that? How about 1 John chapter 2, verse 3? John says, by this we know that we've come to know him. How can you know that you really have known him? Because you walk an aisle and pray with somebody? Because you shook the preacher's hand? Because you were baptized? Because of, How do you know? John says, by this we know that we've come to know him because we keep his commandments. We obey him. And the thought there of that word keep is not perfectly keep, but it's observe. There is an attitude in us that says, I am looking to the word of God and I want to observe it. When the Bible says something, I desire to obey. The thought there is I desire. How about James chapter 2? James grew up with a lot of religious hypocrites. And he says in his little book in chapter 2, where is your faith? If you have faith, then let me see it by your works. 
In other words, you're saved by grace through faith, but it will demonstrate itself by godly works. And James says, don't tell me you're saved if I can't see it in your life, if there's no godly works in your life. Listen, let me tell you, if you are a believer, you ought to be distinct amongst unbelievers. If you are saved, you ought to live like a saved person at business, at school, at home. Where is your personal integrity? That's why Noah was so distinct. That's why Noah was so different. He was a righteous man, saved by God, but also lived a righteous way. And I exhort you to do that. I exhort you to live differently. That's what Jesus meant about being salt and light. That's what Paul meant about shining forth in a darkened world of sin, holding forth the word of truth. You may be distinct. Toward the end of today's program, Pastor Steve highlighted for us the example we have in Noah's life. He said, if you are a believer, you ought to be distinct amongst unbelievers. If you are saved, you ought to live like a saved person at business, at school, at home. Noah was a righteous man, saved by God, and he lived a righteous life. Our teacher, Steve Kreloff, is pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, and he will be with us on the next verse-by-verse program as we continue to study about Noah and the flood. In closing, let me remind you of the verse-by-verse podcast. You can subscribe by surfing over to versebyverseradio.org and clicking the podcast link on the right-hand side of the page. And I hope you can join us next time for Verse by Verse. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.